Hi everyone, today is November 19th, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Katalin Gotar. Thanks for being here, Katalin. Catalina is an associate professor in the Department of Physiology at the University of Arizona, where she studies the neural basis of emotion in the context of primate social behavior. Um, around the room, we have actually a special guest today, Jose Vargas Diaz, who is professor at the Institute for Cell Physiology at the National University of Mexico, UNAM, if you want to Google him. Hi. Hi. We have Charlie Wilson. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. Rama Rutnam. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um, just in the manner of a small and inadequate intro, um, Catalan's work covers a lot of ground in describing the functional anatomy of amygdala. She's reported a regional division of labor between nuclei that perform evaluative functions, such as categorization of facial expression, those that are tuned to somatic dimensions like gaze direction. She's demonstrated a tight coupling of single neuron firing in the amygdala with changes in skin conductance, which is pretty remarkable, I think, um, and is now developing techniques that use eye scan path as a window to amygdala function. No, really? Is it true? We can talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, there are a couple of things that, that uh, I just, I, I think, hopefully will shape some of the discussion. Um, and, uh, of course, everybody can come in as they please. Uh, first, we know much about the amygdala in relation to fear conditioning, but your work points to a richer idea of the type of processing that occurs in the region. I thought we could discuss some of what has been overlooked about how the processing of neutral information, um, some, some of that, and, and use this as a platform to consider the core input-output function of the amygdala. And then um, other, and, and, and another thing I thought would be interesting here is, is I thought we might talk about the use of primates in the context of these high-level research questions of social communication and whether it's appropriate to apply reductionist thinking to complex data in which understanding individual variation may be the key to parsing things. So um, I guess first let's start with uh, what we know about the amygdala, just the, the basic anatomy, connectivity, and just briefly if you could take us through. So starting with... Uh in the 70s and 80s, the, the literature on the amygdala basically exploded, and this is this is due to you know, cognitive neuroscience and the emotion not being a, a, a dirty word in neuroscience anymore. And the early work had to do with fear conditioning, and a lot of what we learned about the amygdala: the cellular structure, the connectivity, the uh, the plasticity mechanisms that occur in the amygdala are due to the work of, of, of real luminaries who use the fear conditioning paradigm. Now, it would take us an hour to go through how wonderful the outcome of the work is, but our role is here to sort of look at this the evolu in an evolutionary perspective. What is the meaning of this work and how it can be uh, ported over to other species? And rats are um, prey animals. They are animals who survive if they have very good self-protective mechanisms. They are fearful, and they learn not to go back there again when something bad happened. And their amygdala is set up to be a protective device, to protect them from becoming somebody's lunch. Uh, primates are social animals. The, 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 we, don't, we don't perish because we get to be somebody's lunch. <laughs> We perish because we don't integrate well in our society. Because we're not loved, we're not appreciated, we're not, we're not getting from our social milieu what we deserve. This is what takes us into the psychiatrist wards. It's it's not fear. It's anxiety. No no psychiatrist ever wants to treat fear. All psychiatrists treat anxiety or, a, or an unwarranted fear. Of, of, of things that might happen. These are the kinds of fears that we should study in the primate amygdala and in the human amygdala. Not necessarily the kind of fear that we see with conditioning. And I want to repeat again that this is by no means any kind of deprecating comment at the address of people who've done absolute brilliant groundbreaking work in, in, in the physiology and anatomy of the amygdala, but we have to take into account that the amygdala scales evolutionarily up with, and, and it serves species-specific needs, and the needs of a rodent are completely different than the needs of a social primate. So this is why I think when you work with monkeys, you have to uh, 
rely on what is known about fear conditioning and extinction and all these, these paradigms, but you have to go into what primates evolved to do best, and that is to negotiate the very intricate challenges of their social environment rather than the challenges of their physical environment. So, so, go ahead. so then in uh, as a sort of homology to your work, if we wanted to understand the rat amygdala better, we should try to study more subtle cues the rat uses to detect the uh, to detect dangerous situations. Because in your work, you you study subtle cues that the monkey uses to detect its social status in situations. Yes. Yes. So normally in a rat experiment, we don't use very subtle cues. You know, I got shocked here. I didn't yes. get shocked there. It's pretty much. Yes. Am I, I getting it right? <laughs> yes. I, I, th I think that there is more to the behavioral repertoire of a rodent, especially of a successful rodent like the rat. The rat is an extremely successful rodent. It's a highly adaptable species in all sorts of environments. And I think that there are very uh, interesting behaviors in, in rats that are, they have some sort of a social structure. I don't really know what their sort of natural, we always think about the rats living in a cage in a laboratory, but obviously they have, you know, wonderful skills of navigation, of maternal behavior. Uh, they have play behavior. I, um, I'm aware of certain vocalizations that they produce. I'm aware of certain imitation behaviors or, or sort of smelling each other's breath and figuring out what they ate and where they're coming from. So clearly there's always more good neuroscience to be done if you understand the ecology of the species that you're work, working with, regardless of any animal. And the rats are part of that list. She's curious because a lot of the, the amygdala results that you uh, show are, are really about identifying visual stimuli. I suppose you could have done the experiments with auditory stimuli if you wanted and could have got the same kind of richness of, of responses. I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, but the you know, it becomes almost like a sensory structure when you start looking at the stimuli that are the adequate stimuli to the cells. It becomes a little bit like the first cortex or something yes. like that. So, so how does it how does it get to be a sensory structure? I mean, the uh, how does it get that kind of information? Where does it lie on these the path between sensory input and motor output? The amygdala always seem to me to be sort of outside of that path somewhere, and on some in, some sort of internal state uh, circuit or something like that, rather than part of the regular mm -hmm. sensory motor. So first of all. Um there's no one amygdala. There's a cluster of nuclei that are both uh, developmentally and sort of evolutionary and completely different. They just happen to be together in the same physical place in the brain, but they're not necessarily the same structure. In fact, we're talking about something like 13 plus minus nuclei that are grouped, as I showed in my seminar, in nuclei that have more like a cortical architecture and nuclei that have subcortical architecture. And there's also something called the extended amygdala. And there are structures that are so homogeneous in terms of cellularity and in terms of input outputs and in terms of their the role in the circuit, for example, the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, that it would be completely arbitrary to say that this is part of the amygdala or it's not. And some of the ventral striatum structures, substantially nominata, it's very difficult to come up with good arguments to separate it from the amygdala. Now, in terms of how is it different from, for example, infratemporal cortex, I think that if you look at the input area of the amygdala, the lateral nucleus, and you look at uh, the uh, type of input that it receives, there is a topography, the more dorsal areas are visual, and then a little ventral to that area is auditory, and a little ventral to that is somatosensory, and then the most ventral part is actually receiving inputs from these different modalities where they get mixed. So it's basically a recapitulation 
of the sense of sensory mapping of high dimensional sensory mapping of all modalities coming from high level association vortices and then you want to ask why would you want to take information that's already coded somewhere in the temporal cortex and replicate it in the amygdala and um, my unverified opinion about that is that the lateral nucleus is sort of like the dentate gyrus where you have a large number of neurons that project to an order of magnitude larger number of neurons. So what happens here, what happens is that you, you achieve a very sparse code. You orthogonalize the representation of these entities. And if, if your job in later stages of processing to associate each stimulus with some kind of a value, and that is going to trigger a response within this organ, a somatic and autonomic response that is extremely important to avoid interference between the stimuli. And the more orthogonal the representation of the external world is, the less likely that you're going to make an error of associating each stimulus with the wrong kind of value. So it is indeed a recapitulation. At the level of the cortical nuclei, I do believe that there is a recapitulation of sensory mapping. Now, later in the processing stage, because the, the, the amygdala, even though it's not a single organ, there is a course of, there's a flow of information, a flow of, of, of processing in the amygdala, going from the lateral nucleus to basal to accessory basal and then to the central nucleus or back to the cortex. And this flow of information is almost like it gets more and more complicated. So the output of the lateral nucleus where you remap somatosensory, auditory, visual stimuli, it gets mixed with the output of the medial and orbitofrontal cortex in the next stage of process. So you add a layer of complexity, and then later on you add another layer of complexity. And at the end, when you have a very complex representation of what is it out there, what am I perceiving, what does it mean for me, how is this meaning influenced by the the current context, whether that's a social context or a physical context, and so then you have to make a decision. And then that decision point is where the information is passed onto the central nucleus, which engages the autonomic nervous system, and there's an enormous dimensionality reduction because the world can come to you and the evaluation can be extremely complex and multidimensional, but the modalities in which your autonomic nervous system and your body <coughs> respond to it are much lower dimensional. So what happens there is that you inflate this space in which the stimuli are represented in order to have a very sophisticated and nuanced representation. But when it comes about giving a response, you compress this space and you give out relatively uh, simple commands that throw switches in the autonomic nervous system for each organ system. It changes your respiration, your heart rate, your pupil dilation, your skin temperature. It's going to do certain things that are measurable in the periphery, but the periphery has nowhere near the ability to, 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 to distinguish between so many possibilities as, as the sort of central representation. So it is in it is in many way a um, a process of uh, gradual associations, more and more dimensions, and then reducing it to something that's more the most appropriate response from for the species and for that context. It's like a description of the whole brain. Yeah. indeed. Many times I think about the amygdala as a whole little brain. It has sensory, it has motor, it has learning mechanism, it has intermediate stages, indeed. So this is the, the expansionist view of the amygdala, which I, I faced once before in the form of Leonard Heimer, who I thought was going to have the amygdala take over the entire forebrain. His extended amygdala was a, basically an invasion. Uh, everybody had to protect their part of the brain from Leonard, who was about to incorporate it into the amygdala. Yeah, I think I, I think I fall into that scene. <laughs> I think I sort of when I think about the structure, I'm thinking how is it connected to the amygdala. But let me def let me uh, defend you. Uh, there are these uh, data, and um, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I don't exactly remember who did it for the first time. 
I found out about him from Nathan Emery, who was in David Perrett's lab, and we were colleagues in David Emery's lab at Postdoc, and he showed me a plot of multidimensional scaling that somehow showed the connectivity of different parts of the brain. So you took a mammalian brain, and then you put these different names of things in different space, and you show how close they are to other structures based on how solid the anatomical connections are. And the most connected structures in the mammalian brain is the amygdala, hands down. But so, uh, uh, when you, the use of the word of recapitulation, isn't that true that during mammalian evolution, coming from birds to mammals, the amygdala and the olfactory cortex and the limbic structures came before the neocortex and the parametric kind of uh, structures that measure things. So it's not a recapitulation. In fact, the cortex is a recapitulation and expansion of the amygdala if we think in evolutionary terms. Because this connection, even if the social interaction of rats and alligators and primates are completely different, the connections from the brainstem and to the brainstem are from, from a very long time. Yes. And now the new connections are the neocortical connections in which we can stop emotion or a reaction because it's wise to do so. Yes. But uh, but the connections were there even from pre previous to mammalian right? Mm -hmm. But yes, I, I agree with you that the connections with the brainstem and with the hypothalamus it's probably very well conserved across species. But if you just look at the lateral nucleus, which receives the cortical inputs, it's a small nucleus in the rat. It's a large nucleus in the prime in the monkey, and it's the largest nucleus in the human. So as if the larger and more diverse the corticalization of various sensory modalities and the more sources of sensory input can come, the more the lateral nucleus has to scale up to handle that information and be able to so, store it in a non-overlapping, non-interfering way. So, so if, you, if you think of the amygdala as uh, having to do with salience and what's important, you made this whole story to start with that uh, we have this complicated social existence um, and it's very difficult to do with all this sensory stimuli, it's very subtle. Is there then comparative studies in uh, um, things that, uh, species that are say, more or less uh, the same level of complexity, but some are much more social than others. It seems like then you might expect that the latter might really be bigger uh, in the sense that it's not just a general processing of more complicated things, but maybe the complicated salience that you get from social interactions might be the one thing that's particularly uh, emphasized in the amygdala. So you may have a bigger lateral amygdala, I don't know, and, two different species of uh, neural monkeys. Say something where one is much more complicated than its social uh, structure, but they're, say, in the same family or, or uh, related evolutionarily. I think there is something like that. I'm not sure whether very rigorous control interspecies comparisons have been done, especially because the species that we're talking about, you know, bonobos and and so large, other large apes, they're, they're difficult to study. I mean, border on things that people are not willing to do. But uh, there is a scaling up of the amygdala with the, with the natural size of the social group. So they, the, the larger the social group, the more sophisticated the quote, social brain is and the more intelligently the animal is equipped to respond to social stimuli. So it's as though the, 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 the group size uh, imposes and, and the demands, the social cognition demands imposed by the group size actually imposes you know, evolutionary constraints of how the amygdala and the associated structure of the social brain are going to be.
Are there any clues from sexual dimorphisms? I mean, do you see that level of, of variability across? I know nothing about the female amygdala, and that the reason for I study male monkeys because it's complicated enough to figure out what goes on in their brains without oscillatory levels of hormones. So female monkeys have a 28-day cycle, and uh, if you want to sort of put two experiments uh, as, as, as saying the same thing and then recording from the same state in the animal, you, you now have to have to watch the calendar. And, you know, again, it's complicated enough the way it is, and I, I'm afraid of hormones. I don't know what kind of wrenches it would throw in my work. And I thought I, you were about to say that a male social interactions were were simple, and, <laughs> and we ought to start with the simplest ones, and female social interactions. Actually, actually Charlie... You were actually saying that. No, no, no. <laughs> actually, actually, despite the common belief that, that, that females are sort of more prone to navigate better social, the social labyrinths of life. In rhesus macaques, the rank of a female is by birth. So your rank depends on the rank of your mother. And it depends by, by who your mother is and your birth order. So your first daughter, you're the alpha, the mother is the alpha, you're the beta. But if you're the second daughter, then the youngest daughter becomes... It's kind of like a royal, like, a, like an aristocracy that you have to be. So there's very little jockeying for position in the matriline. It's kind of given. Where, where social interaction and especially conflict occurs is between matrilines. The larger the number of female monkeys in the matriline, the more dominant that matriline is. So within each matriline, there's a hierarchy and between the matrilines. And in a troop of macaques, in the natural troop of macaques, there might be a couple of matrilines. Now, with the males, the situation is completely different. The males stay with their mother until prepubescence, from two, three, four years of age. Then they immigrate. That means they leave the mother's group and they form little male troops on their own, on the periphery of the major lines and of the life of the troop. There they learn to be males. They rough and tumble, play, challenge each other, sort of learn to deal with the fight for social status. Then they figure out themselves who is the more dominant monkey. And the ones who feel that they're ready, they start to creep into another major line that the major line of their mothers. And there they enter at the entry-level position of lowest status male. And from there, they have to work their way <coughs> to gain reproductive rights, because not every male gets to mate with the females. Even if they go behind the bush when the alpha male doesn't look, they, they, they don't even get to do that. And they have to rise in the hierarchy. So for a female monkey, her job is to have good reproductive success, to have alliances with the other females, raise the children, increase the size of her family, maintain her rank. For a male monkey, the job is to rise in the hierarchy until he gets to be the CEO. Same pressures that we have in our lives. You, you know, there's demand on them to make it. And that puts a whole different... Uh, demand of how you negotiate social interactions. Males constantly challenge the status. They don't need to cooperate. They need to cooperate very little. The alpha male usually has a couple of allies. The beta males, one or two who are below them, and they kind of have them keep order in the colony and punish the troublemakers and so. But the moment he has a weakness, the beta is going to try to take its place. So they constantly have they constantly fight for position for recognition, whether they do it with violence because they're large, or they do it with, with, with social intelligence, being able to build good alliances and, and have have a network of supporters. It's it's actually really humbling to look of how complicated the life of a rhesus monkey is and how important it is for them to take into account very many variables. And these computations require a large network, and the amygdala is clearly central in this network. It seems like just the fact that the, the males are so labile in their positioning 
would be interesting. Yes. Yes. So exactly, this is where we were coming from. Why do you? So this is what you said that that, that males are simple. They're not simple. They're actually. I think that eighty percent of the CPU of a male monkey is constantly busy processing its status relative to the status of whoever he's interacting with, including me when I work with them. It appears that you are talking about editorial boards. Yes. <laughs> in our area. So, <laughs> but. Uh, any academic institution could yeah. be modeled after that. So, in a way, ethologists have made a big or large catalog of the uh, behaviors of many species. And the impression they give is that what Lawrence called fixed action patterns, which are kind of automatic responses to given context and cues. Uh, but as the cooperation is evolving, I mean, as the story is said, I, I'm not the author of this theory, it's because the child needs more and more care. Mm -hmm. And then the difference between generals begin to be larger and larger because the kids need care more and more time. The suckling process, the childcare makes a lot of this foundation for the primary social structure. I don't know if you agree with that. And then males need to be, need cooperation to hunt or to bring food in some species, in some primate species. But then how come we explain in this context that some of the primate species are monogamous mm -hmm. and some are polygamous, mm -hmm. for example? So you raise something very interesting. And uh, there's two, two ideas come to mind. One is that uh, in primate species, there's a continuum between different structured societies. From an egalitarian society, like the bonobos, they have a very egalitarian society. They have sex as a, as a social currency. They pay with it and they appease each other using sex. And they're, they're sort of female dominated, but it's a very egalitarian society. And then we go through a continuum to the most despotic society where the hierarchy is extremely rigid. So it turns out that the racist macaques are possibly the most despotic society, with the most rigid hierarchy. Now that is interesting because what we're trying to do here is neuroethology. We're trying to figure out what are the springs of the behavior in, in neural terms. How did, how did evolution equip the animal with, with the software to cope with the given structure of its society. And I think that if you are uh, a primate in an egalitarian society like capuchin monkeys, they cooperate. You can't get rhesus monkeys to cooperate. They don't, they're extraordinarily good at competing and finding out the slightest weakness in the other monkey to imaginate themselves in a situation where they can immediately take over. But they're not good at cooperating. You can't, you can't set up an experiment where two rhesus monkeys cooperate. Capuchins are wonderful to cooperate. So that's one thing. The other thing has to do with the monogamous species. But the monogamy is only a behavioral monogamy. It's not a genetic monogamy. And the interesting thing is, is that the females cheat. So the females have to have the social intelligence to figure out which male is going to be a good father. But those males may not necessarily carry the genes that are going to be good survivors and good males to pass their genes. So the, so the intelligent females, titi monkeys, for example, are monogamous. These are new world monkeys. Titi monkeys are monogamous. The male takes care of the baby. The male actually holds the baby all the time and just gives it to the female during nursing times. And then he, and then he holds the baby for all the time. Now, they're, they, they're so together, the pair of parents, they sit on the branch and their tails are intertwined. They're actually very cute to look at. 
But if you do the paternity test, then the female has chosen another genetic father, but the appropriate social father. So the father, so not every male is equally good at being a good genetic pool, having a good genetic uh, pool, and also being a good father. So the females choose, and I think that it requires a real sophisticated social intelligence to know this is a male that I'm attracted to, I want to make with this male because he has good genes that are going to have my offspring survive, but he's not good at caring for the kids, so I'm going to make this other male believe that the offspring is his. So, you know, you have to take monogamy with a grain of salt. This is very nice, but what you are, you are telling us is that between the despotic and the egalitarian, there is a spectrum, and we as a primates are in one, in the middle of some place in this spectrum. And that has a very... Well, I think she was avoiding that. No, but... Uh, I don't know anything about human primates <laughs> no, no, but, and their mating behavior. But it is the logical inference. Uh, it is the logical inference that we, we are not neither the despotic nor the uh, egalitarian. Uh, it's obvious that we are in Well, I know between. some people that are one or the other, so maybe... But, uh, but that, that was the second part of the question. If our variation as a species, the cultural variation, made the spectrum again, or if there are strong, strong ties, I'm not talking about Ekman basic emotion, but something very strong as a foundation, that no matter what institution we build, democracy, economy, the uh, the market, whatever. In the tiny group where we are working or we are playing, we we'll still behave with the hierarchical primate. Right. I mean, this gets down to the basic. Yes. We don't mean to be glib here. I mean, there's a, there yeah. are real basic fundamental human yes. questions that are being addressed here with this work. And yes. That's. I think that I think that uh, the, the hierarchy in a market in a species where the multi-generational living together is inevitable. I don't know whether this hierarchy has to go on, on sort of uh, around gender, but they clearly where multiple generations of adults are necessary to raise a young and to discipline and to give this young social experience. It's very clear. It's very clear that hierarchy does exist, and and hierarchy exists in society for practical reasons too. So I I think that we are evolutionarily equipped to be able to process hierarchy and understand hierarchy, and and, and there's there's probably sort of a, a a propensity in our social brain to to sort out. The, the social interactions between other individuals and between us. And that could be hierarchy, it could be also other sort of interactions between individuals that, that the system is set up to sort out. Not only dominance, also probably uh, nurturing, caring, trust, who do you go to for certain kind of information, who do you emulate. Uh, and I think that there are all sorts of sort of in social learning paradigms, this, this could pan out very clearly. I think so, but, uh, along the same lines, I was just thinking about this issue of the two different types of chimps, Paniscus and Trogorites, yes. so the Bonobos and the more common chimps. Yes. The genetic, di genetic distance between them is not great at all. No. It's very small. Indeed. But the way there's all conflict in their society is extremely different. Now, what is that due to? Is it, I mean, in the, I know it's a difficult question. I'm not expecting, <laughs> expecting an answer, but I'm just wondering. But yeah, that's what I was sort of leading to that, but I'm afraid to use the A word. Um, but, <laughs> but I was just curious about it because it, you know, it points to this idea of, as, as Say said, this continuum and where we lie in that continuum. Is that continuum dictated by small changes in brain structure, although the genetic distance between species may be very small, or is it a function of the genetic distance itself? You see what I'm saying? To me, it is not clear at all. If it can be correlated with amygdala size and connectivity. So, this is the size of uh, amygdala and bonobos? It's a good question. 
It's a good question. I don't know whether it would be necessary the size of the amygdala. I think that so so that, so let me give you a, some more concrete examples. So one of the important roles of the amygdala is communicating with the insula. The insula is a very complex area, and it it, it, it has a very large array of functions. Many of them social functions. But many of them gustatory and, 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 and uh, sort of feeding behavior, right? So there's a gustatory cortex, there's somatosensory cortex, there's viscerosensory cortex in, in, the, in the insula, and the gyri of the insula are species dependent. So we have frontoinsular gyri. These are the gyri where John Allman and others found the so-called von Economo cells, the fusiform cells that are typic typical only for uh, <coughs> humans and great apes. This is the gyrus where probably the most evolved forms of empathy exist, where sense of humor is. So this, this frontotemporal gyrus is actually absent in macaques. Uh, and if you look in human brains, every insula is like the human face. It's so different in the in the where the gyri and salsa are. It's like it's, it's 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 you have an other little face, other individuality in the way your insula is set up. And the more frontal parts of the insula are sort of the more evolved, more sophisticated, more sophisticated modules of the social brain, and. These, these, these don't exist in, in the rhesus. So in the rhesus, the insula has to do with sort of uh, visceral sensory information, oh, some it. forms of empathy. Probably there are mirror cells there, nobody really looked. Probably there's a lot of oral activity that, 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 is, that is involved uh, with activation of the insula. We know that in humans, empathy is there, but we also know that disgust is there, for example. So the disgust towards a, a, a smelly, rotten food and the disgust towards a social action of your peers is carried out by the insula in the same way. Likewise, pain. The insula is involved in pain. that can be activated by physical pain, it also can be activated by pain of social rejection and exactly the same areas like that. So we know that the higher uh, apes, and so the, the apes and humans are equipped with this area of the insula, the frontal insular gyri, and we know that that has connection with the amygdala. Now the gyrus doesn't exist in the monkeys. So, so the, the social sophistication, the ability to go beyond of what you experience. And so, for example, the, the, the sort of more like a social mirror system mm -hmm. rather than the action mirror system that have been shown in this We don't think that they exist. So is there a left brain asymmetry in this? I mean, for example, you have somatic disgust or somatic yeah. pain versus emotional yeah. pain and, you know, emotional disgust. Is, are they all represented on different sides or is it? It's because in the auditory system, it's represented on two different sides. The emotional content of sounds mm -hmm. versus the actual meaning of sounds. I'm not an expert in this field, but mm -hmm. as far as I know, they're represented in the same place. Oh, same Anterior part. cingulate, nucleus of the solitary tract, periaqueductal gray. They, in, in, at least in fMRI studies, they light up in the same both place. Sides. Both sides. Where scenes can make you vomit? I mean, yeah. 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 All right. It seems like one well, so it seems like one of it's, it's pretty interesting. We, we, we talked, we started talking about the amygdala is you know, doing fear conditioning. What is this place doing? What is that place doing? What is that place doing? And then one of the we've been talking, you know, recently about the interspecies uh, uh, comparisons because we have gross classes of behaviors that are different for different species and we're trying to compare them with gross structures of, uh, of the brain. Um, and it seems like one of the other things that you're running up against, you also have individual differences, yes. right? And so some of it is, is like, there's lots of questions about using these uh, interspecies differences and using individual differences. And it actually points down to how complicated it is because we actually have to really know what the differences are in terms of the behavior. Like this idea of fear, you know, or whatever, dominance, or I mean, these are all very gross 
uh, kind of constructs. And unless we know, you know, we may think because we don't, we can only test rats because we're so dumb. We don't know their behaviors. So we just scare the crap out of them. That's all we can do in interacting with a rat. And so that's all we study, right? Um, but it's really, in it, you know, if you really want to get at these complicated behaviors, you have to know a lot about the behavior. Yes. And it's very useful to know about genetic relationships and, and you know, uh, comparative studies. Yes. And individual differences, as the behavior gets complicated, individual differences will be large and yes. they will be reflected in the brain. Yes. Um, and it seems like a lot of the challenge is to get enough detail either in what we know about genetics and what we know about the physiology and anatomy of the brain and what we know about the behavior to really start to link them up into some kind of mesh where you actually get at the, the real kinds of things rather than saying, you know, fears there to these very coarse I agree. things. I agree 100%. So let's just take uh, the, the sort of the most in vogue um, mood disorder or anxiety disorder, PTSD. A lot of soldiers are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and they have PTSD and this is a huge challenge for, for, for the VA hospitals and the psychiatrists. So you take a group of young men who go out and they experience very similar traumatic emotional experiences. They see their peers die, they see so all sorts of things. And, and arguably sometimes damage done to you and abuse done to you is less traumatic than abuse that you witness that is done to somebody who you care about. And we know that soldiers are, 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 are very supportive of each other. So uh, only 10% of them return with PTSD. That's a lot. But nevertheless, why did the 90% of the soldiers who experience the same trauma didn't develop PTSD. And even of the 10% who return with PTSD, some will respond to medication and some will respond to therapy and some will not respond. So what predisposes them? One thing that, that came out in, in my talk is this, is this genetic background. And yes, we know that there is a serotonin transporter, but there are many other transporters, monoamine transporters, dopamine transporters. So there's, there's a lot of genetic the genetic background. Are the genes a be-all, end-all sort of curse that you cannot escape from? Absolutely not. And you can have a very good genetic background. So let's say you're homozygous for the long copy, for the long allele of the serotonin transporter, and you got lucky of every other transporter. But something happened to you in early childhood that sort of pried the pump of the amygdala and changed forever its mechanism of processing information. I'm not exactly sure where I have this information mark, but I, but I think that there is an experiment that that some people did that, that is very telling, and, and I hope that I'm doing justice to the data because I can't quite recall now whose lab it was and how it was done, but I think they took red pups and they injected lactic acid in the amygdala of some and didn't inject lactic acid in the amygdala of the other half. And then they let them develop. They, they developed exactly in the same condition. And then when they reached adulthood, they fear conditioned them and they extinguished them. And it was obviously a blind study. And it turns out that, they, that the rats that get conditioned the fastest and extinguish the slowest were the ones who got that was not associated with any fearful or any sort of stimulation. It was just a chemical, a chemical challenge to the amygdala. What we know about why lactic acid, but we know about lactic acid, that lactic acid injected in humans causes a panic disorder, especially for those who have are prone for, for panic. So what this experiment should illustrate that some Thing that happens early that changes the mode of action of the amygdala can forever change in which the amygdala will then process the same kind of information. And once some, some shift occurred early in development, that shift is going to determine how the amygdala will react to a traumatic event. And it might be overreacting, it might overconsolidate. In, in fact, when we try to extinguish a behavior, we're not erasing that knowledge. Extinguishing is not unlearning or forgetting. It's learning not to respond in the way we responded before. And 
Gregory Kirk showed that when the amygdala learns to associate a noxious stimulus with a, with, with, a, with a neutral stimulus, neurons become correlated. When they extinguish that behavior in the rats, the neurons are still correlated. They never decorrelate. They're not like cortical neurons that, as you will need that correlation through some LTD, LTP mechanisms, you lose that correlation. These neurons stay correlated for the rest of your life. This is why people who have phobia and they go and spend a fortune on specific desensitization to the psychiatrist and they came with a huge snake phobia and eventually they pet the snake and they put it in their shirt or whatever, they're, they're completely cured. It's sufficient for them to go through a stressful event, not traumatic, not even, just stressful event. And, and the phobia is back in full bloom because it never really went away. So it might be that what is special about the amygdala is that it's one of those learners that writes with letters of fire in your emotional memory, something that happened to you early in your life, maybe during development, maybe during violinization, and you cannot ignore that later. So returning to your question, genetic variation, absolutely. I think we have vulnerabilities. I think that everything that's important in a social mammal's life is decided very early. Maybe in, in humans, it's probably the first two or three years of life, including conception and pregnancy, right? All the sort of patterns, the way these structures of the social brain and of the emotional brain are going to process information, how they're going to amplify it, how they're going to extinguish it, probably these patterns are set very early during this incredibly sensitive period. Why the amygdala why it would be so strongly inscribed in the amygdala, there's nothing special about the cells in the amygdala. There are neurons like everywhere else. But if you want to find one structure in the brain where you can find every neurochemical, <laughs> you know, including all sorts of weird neuromodulators, the amygdala secretes its own corticotropylicin factor. Now, for a long time, people believe corticotropylicin factor is a, is a pituitary hormone, right? Well, the amygdala makes its own. When does it make it? When you're separated from somebody that you're bonded to. You take two animals that have been pair housed together and they're used to being together and you separate them. So this is death, divorce, you know, deployment in the army, whatever you name it in human terms. The amygdala, the ones that's left behind, starts to secrete corticotropylicin factors. So that incredible richness of the neurochemicals, probably this is what makes the amygdala, the connection with all the rest of the brain and the incredible richness of, of neurochemicals that makes it so sensitive to what happens in, in early life. So it's, I think it's that thing that, that, that the complexity resulting from the, you know, the, the diversity of individual experience mm -hmm. that makes it so hard to study. So let me go back to the neurological question, the things I've pointed out to. There is, I mean, it is an instinctual fear and anxiety are instinctual. They, they have a survival value, and we presume they've been there for a long time, even in primitive amygdalas, right? But as you know, as you study this in older, older animals, uh, you start to notice individual differences because of the differences in the way they were raised and the social experiences they've had. And this impacts, this is why certain human beings react more adversely and in a maladaptive way to fear and anxiety, and others don't. But what is a residue, but there is a residual, not a residual, there is a component we started out with, a certain basic set of processing capability of the amygdala that we started out when we were born with. Yes. How do you tease that out? You do ethological studies the way, say, Lawrence or Tinbergen did, with, you know, little cut-out figures with black holes with big mouth, open mouth, with a line for, you know, you know what I'm saying? How, what is, has anyone done that kind of work? There is something that has been done and I'm going to interpret that in the context of the notion of temperament. Now, there's all kinds of dictionary definitions of what temperament is in, in sort of psychological terms. So let's just assume, for the sake of this discussion, that the temperament is the totality of ways in which you engage your autonomic nervous system when you're faced with a particular challenge. You're more an approach person, more an open person, more a withdrawal person, more a somatizing person. So what is the evidence for something like innateness of temperament? I think Ned Kalin did a, a longitudinal study and he took some young children in their first few weeks of life 
and show them something that was unexpected, like a jack-in-the-box. And then he, he quantified the way in which these children reacted to the story. And some children were the so-called reactive. They, the reactive children had an avoidance kind of approach. They started to cry, they crammed, they had flexor uh, activity. Flexors always are engaged in defensive behaviors. And other children were sort of more curious and looked and they were engaged in, in, the, in terms of their attention, but didn't have this sort of motor autonomic responses. And they followed these children <coughs> throughout their adolescence and young adulthood. And they tried to see how much of what happened to them and their, their, their personality and their social development can be accounted for by this one single response to the jack-in-the-box toy in their first few weeks of life. And it turns out that the children who were not reactive, that is, they responded to the positively curious, interesting, they were all over the place. There was no statistical significance on any dimension of their personality. But what I recall was one of the significant outcomes of the study is that none of the children who were reactive became extrovert. None of them. So that sort of tells you that when you come into the world, that the, the activation pattern to something that is that it's a challenge, it's already there. That this sort of temperament, which it's not necessarily, uh, uh, it's not based on any values, on any interaction with your mother. It's, it's, it's sort of, the way I think about it, it's the style of your autonomic nervous system. It's the style in which the organism is going to respond to something, how much energy you put into defending or not defending yourself on something that you don't even know that it's dangerous. So I think that this 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 innate factor that becoming the world with a with a set of genes, with a temperament, and I cannot take it back further where temperament comes from. It's probably the modus operandi on the autonomic nervous system. That's sort of where I think would be the key. But then you came to the variation, individual variation, that Darwin says is the basis of our survival, mm -hmm. right? Because this environment could change at any moment, and the ones which are handicapped now could be the ones mm -hmm. who survive in the next environment. Okay. So, and that variation has to exist in order to be biology. Yes. Great point. Well, thank you for being with us, Catalin. Thank you. Uh, this has been your scientist talk shop. Thank you.